So three years ago, uh, my first little guy was born, and uh, in that one instant, the world changed for me. It was one of those landmark events, and uh, in the average you know, span of life, for the average person, you may have, I don't know, a handful of these life-altering types of things happen. And uh, for me, this was one of them, because as I held that little crying baby, in my arms for the very first time, I just had to respond to him. So I'm holding this baby, I'm feeling completely overwhelmed in every conceivable way, just thinking, all right, what do I do now? I mean, I guess he's ours, I guess it's our job to care for him and to teach him and to train him and to love him. And I'm feeling overwhelmed and excited and a lot of emotions just all mixed up together. And I just had no choice but to respond to his arrival. That's the situation new parents find themselves in, right? Whether you like it or not, you have got to respond to that baby. But when Jesus is born, this experience of responding to his arrival is not just limited to Mary and Joseph. Something larger had taken place. When Jesus comes into the world, the whole world is put into this position of having to respond to his coming. When Jesus is born, immediately this question is forced upon all human beings. How are you going to respond to the Son of God who was born a king, who had become a suffering servant, who so loved the world that he came to redeem a sinful people, even though his mission meant his own suffering and death? How will you respond to Jesus? That is the question. And what we see in Matthew chapter 2 is people answering that question in two different ways. In our text for today, Matthew gives us two examples of people. We have the wise men and we have Herod answering that one question about this one King Jesus. And after the first example of the wise men, we come to recognize that you may respond to Jesus' coming and to his kingship with worship. So our text begins today sometime after the birth of Jesus, and immediately we're introduced to the wise men, uh, the Magi. And as we read, they don't go straight to Bethlehem where Jesus is born, they go to Jerusalem. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So who are these wise men? Who are these magi? Well, most notably, we know they are Gentiles, right? They are people from the east, maybe Persia, maybe Babylon. But right off the bat, from the very first accounts of Jesus' physical time on earth, we recognize that Jesus' glory, his saving work, is not reserved for the Jews only. That God's promise that he made way back to Abraham, to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, that he would bless the whole world through Abraham's seed, that promise is being fulfilled in Jesus. And we have evidence of that as these Gentile wise men come to worship Jesus as the Christ. I mean, Matthew's whole purpose for writing this gospel is to identify Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who came to save the world. So while the wise men are Gentiles, they also have some background in astrology. That would have been their background as magi. And as we know, they most likely were familiar with Old Testament prophecy. Prophecies like what we read in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, where through Balaam, God reveals that a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
And as God sovereignly places a star in the sky, signifying the arrival of the Messiah, the wise men, by God's grace, respond. They pack their stuff. They hit the road for Jerusalem. And this is important primarily because they recognize Jesus as king. Just look at the question they ask as soon as they arrive in Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So God has already opened their eyes to recognize that this star signals the arrival of the king. And the text goes on to show us that Jesus is not a king like Herod. And he is not a king like Caesar. He is not a king like any other earthly king. He is the messianic king. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. The long-awaited Savior come to save the people. Just look ahead a couple of verses. After Herod uh, asked the chief priests and the scribes where the the Christ was to be born, we read this in verses 5 and 6. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This is significant because King David is from Bethlehem. And Jesus is being linked to to King David. Now why is that connection significant? Well, that connection is important because way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this covenant promise with David. And in that covenant, God promises to give him an everlasting throne. That a great king would rise from David's line who would reign forever. In other words, the Savior and His everlasting kingdom will come and fulfill the covenant promise that God made to, Abraham, to David way, way, way back then. And our text is highlighting Jesus as the great Davidic king. Born in Bethlehem of the line of Judah. Come to save the people. Come to establish this everlasting kingdom and to reign forever. That is Jesus And to further prove that Jesus is this great Davidic king, Micah 5.2, 2 Samuel 5.2 are quoted in this way that leads us as readers to connect the dots that these prophetic texts are fulfilled as Jesus is born. Proving that Bethlehem's greatness is only there because Jesus the Messiah was born there. That, that this great shepherd king is Jesus. That like David, Jesus will shepherd and tend to and care for and lead his people. But unlike David, Jesus is just so much more than him. He's so much more than David. Unlike David, he's able to care for his people forever. Making peace with God available to them through his own death and resurrection. So the wise men respond to Jesus' coming. By recognizing his kingship. But the question for you and I to think through is, are we recognizing the kingship of Jesus Christ this morning? And I don't mean in some abstract sense. Do you right now, as you sit in this room, recognize that Jesus is the Son of God? And that as we read in Philippians chapter 2, God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That at this moment there is a king who reigns over all creation and his name is Jesus Christ and there is no other. Like these wise men, do you recognize that this morning? Well, the wise men responded to Jesus' coming by recognizing his kingship But then they respond to his kingship 
with worship. As king, they appropriately worship Jesus. Look at verse 2 again. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After recognizing Jesus as king, that he's come, that he's been born, their whole purpose for traveling is to worship. Their whole purpose for packing up and hitting the road and going to Jerusalem is for worship. Which begs the question, what is worship? That can be one of those sort of vague, generic Christian words at times where we throw it around a lot, but you know it's hard to define, possibly. What is worship? Well, worship is more than just singing songs. Worship is paying homage and honor and respect and reverence to one who is worthy of it. Worship is an action. It's a verb. It's something you do. It's something you live out. Christian worship in particular is a way of expressing satisfaction in Jesus Christ. John Piper says this, The essential, vital, indispensable, defining heart of worship is the experience of being satisfied with God in Christ. But it's not just coming to this place where you're so satisfied with who He is. Worship is also a way of submitting to and adoring Christ. William Temple defines worship like this. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness. It is the nourishment of mind with His truth. The purifying of imagination by His beauty. The opening of the heart to His love. The surrender of will to His purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration. Worship is also the purpose of all creation. Theologian John Frame says, Worship is the goal. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history. It is the point of the whole Christian story. So know that you have been created. You are on this earth for the end of worship, for the purpose of worship. And the question this morning is not, are you worshiping? It's who or what are you worshiping? Some of you sit here and the the honest answer is myself. I am so consumed with my own exaltation, with what's coming to me, with my own comforts. For some of you, it's a job or a relationship or possessions, all of these things that this world offers you that look so good and you just want it all. For some of you, it might be the deity of some other religion. But know that the Bible makes it clear that there is only one appropriate context for worship, and that's when it's given to, when it's directed to the one true, holy, living God. That worship is right because of who He is. Because there's none like Him. Because His character and His attributes are mind-stretchingly other and more than everything and anything else. You see, the wise men came to worship Jesus because they recognized the worthiness of his, Him as Messiah and King. But each of us are confronted with the kingship of Jesus Christ this morning. And we have to answer for ourselves, how are we going to respond to his coming and to his kingship? As you think through that question, just know that according to our text, we learn wise ones worship. So here's what the wise men's worship actually looked like. Uh, First, the wise men's worship included joy. Look down to 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the wise men are in Jerusalem. The star reappears. It leads them six miles or so to Bethlehem over the home where Jesus was. And uh, verse 10 says that just seeing that star caused them to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And don't get this wrong. They weren't excited about the star. They were rejoicing because the star was leading them to Jesus. And as this gospel is recorded, the Holy Spirit through Matthew could have just said rejoicing. But we have all this repetition, all of these powerful descriptive words that are being used to drive home the intensity of the wise men's worship, their, their, their joy. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I, uh, I recently took my three-year-old uh, to get a Christmas tree. And uh, this has been our first Christmas with him where he's really uh, been excited. And uh, you would never know it. He was actually the blonde guy up here who did not move during the song at all. Um, but he was really excited. And we've been looking forward to uh, taking him out to get a Christmas tree for a very long time. So we, um, we were on our way and we went to the most magical place to get the most magical Christmas tree experience that there is. We went to Home Depot. And we get there and we pick out a tree and uh, we bring it up front, and the person, we pay for it, the person puts a fresh cut on the bottom, they put one of those nets over the top, and um, they start tying it to the top of our car so we could bring it home. And uh, here's my little guy and I, and we're just watching him tie it to the car, and you would not believe the over-the-top excitement that there was a tree on the top of our car. He could not believe it. He was so happy. He's looking with these wide eyes, full of wonder and awe. He's just beside himself. He's literally bouncing around. Daddy, there's a tree on our car. I can't believe it. He was so exciting. We get in the car. It's all he's talking about. We get home. Mommy, there was a tree on our car. It's all he's talking about. He wakes up the next day. The first word out of his mouth, there was a tree on our car, Daddy. It was crazy. He's just so bursting with joy. And I was looking at him. And it reminded me of the wise men here. They had this childlike, over-the-top, uncontainable joy because they got to worship Jesus Christ. The wise men weren't worshiping out of duty. They weren't worshiping out of obligation. They were worshiping because the kingship of Jesus was so sweet and so good, they just couldn't hold back their unbounding joy. So their worship was full of joy. But we also learn that the wise men's worship included adoration and offering. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So this is the first time that the wise men actually meet Jesus. And uh, as I read it, it almost seems, as I picture it in my mind, it almost seems like this happens in, uh, in one motion. It almost seems like they walk in the door, they see Jesus, and they just fall down worshiping. I mean, this is the first time they've, they've ever seen him or meet him, and their posture before him says everything. This is adoration. But verse 11 also shows us that they give. Look at the rest of verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
Did you catch that? The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh are called treasures, but they're also called gifts. They're called treasures because these are valuable, costly, precious things. These are the things. This is the good stuff, right? I'll share that, but I'm keeping this. This is precious. This is valuable. I'm not giving this away. But not the wise men. The gold, the frankincense, the myrrh also referred to as gifts because they were freely offered up to Jesus. Now Christians, don't the wise men set us an example for worship? As we worship the Lord, are we rejoicing with great joy? Are we so exalting Jesus in our hearts that adoration just soaks and saturates our posture before Him? Are we willing to freely just commit everything and anything for the sake of Jesus Christ, even giving up our earthly treasures in order to honor Him? It's an example, but man, is it a hard one to live out. Because so often our worship is routine, and it's wooden, and it's generic, and it's driven by obligation, and it's so often separated from a heart that just truly longs for and loves Jesus. So let God's Word challenge you to worship Jesus more fully and know that wise ones worship. So the text charges us to consider one king and one question Through the example of the wise men, we see that we may respond to Jesus' coming into his kingship with worship, but we have another example in the text. And through Herod, we recognize that we may also respond to Jesus' coming and his kingship with rejection. So who is Herod? Herod was given the post king of Judea by the Romans. Historically, we know Herod was this ruthless man. He was a ruthless king who was especially paranoid about uh, gaining and maintaining and not losing power for himself. In fact, we know that historically he killed his wife and two of his sons because he suspected them of plotting against him. And even that little bit of historical information is important because here come the wise men and they show up to Jerusalem with this question and they introduce all this tension into the text. As we've, as we've discussed, they're looking for Jesus. And in verse 2, they ask that question, right? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And that question poses a major problem for Herod. Because look at how Herod is described. Verse 1, in the days of Herod the king. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this. Verse 9, after listening to the king. See, Herod is also repeatedly referred to as king. So there's a problem. There's tension. There's this juxtaposition of these two kings. There's Jesus and there's Herod. One sits in a palace with servants. The other one is this lowly child. But there can only be one king. Which one is the true king? And we know that Herod is this power hungry. He's this uh, suspicious, jealous man. And then here come the wise men into town saying, the king of the Jews has just been born. Let's go worship him. So how is Herod going to respond to Jesus' kingship? Is he going to submit? Is he going to acknowledge? Is he going to worship? Or will he see Jesus as a rival and reject? Well, first off, Jesus holds true kingship, not Herod, right? We know that. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is in Revelation chapter 7. And we know the Lord gives John this apocalyptic vision that's written down into a letter. And Revelation can be really tricky. But this is an amazing scene. 
Revelation 7, 9-10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's this amazing scene of God's people from all nations and languages and tongues with one voice together, worshiping God who sits on the throne and Jesus the Lamb. It's this unbelievable picture of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And compare that to what we see here with Herod. Herod reigned as king of Judea for a short time. He dies as kingship's over. See, Herod merely holds an office. He's a political figure. Jesus reigns over all. Herod is king because of crafty political maneuvering. Jesus is king because God the Father has ordained and appointed him so. Herod's kingship is finite. It is limited. Jesus's is all-encompassing and never-ending. But though Jesus' kingship is so full and true and robust, and Herod's kingship is so empty and hollow, Herod hears this question and he is threatened. And here's how he responds. Herod hears of Jesus' kingship and of his coming, and he responds with being troubled. Look at verses 3 and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So the text says that Herod was troubled. That word troubled means worried, bothered, disturbed. But it also carries with it this nuance of fear. The only other time that word appears in Matthew's Gospel is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, when the disciples are watching Jesus walk on water. And we read this. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. That's the word. That's the same word in the Greek that's translated as troubled in our text. They were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. So when Herod hears King Jesus has come, he is so filled up with this disturbed, worried fear, fear over what Jesus' kingship would mean for his own. And then this next little phrase in the text is a little bit unclear. And all Jerusalem with him. Some people say maybe all Jerusalem, like Herod, was just troubled that the Messiah came. I personally do not find that to be a very likely option. Uh, The interpretation I find to be a little bit more likely is that we can assume that since the people were anticipating and expecting and looked forward to the Messiah, and since they knew how ruthless Herod was, that when they heard that the Messiah had been born, They were afraid of how Herod was going to respond. And they had good right to suspect Herod. Because from here on out, we are going to see this progression of sin in Herod's heart. So Herod is troubled. This is the complete opposite reaction from the wise men. And uh, that response is unwrapped for us a little bit in verse 4. Because this inward troubling is now no longer just an inward troubling. Now it's this external, outward thing where he's actively looking for Jesus. So Herod is looking for Jesus, but he's looking for Jesus for all of the wrong reasons. We learn that his worship is not authentic. Verses 7 and 8, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod's response to hearing Micah 5.2 applied to Jesus is to seek him out for the purpose of worship. But we know that he's not worshiping. He's not looking to worship Jesus. In verse 8, Herod is just mimicking the, the, the intention and the response of the, uh, and the purpose of the wise men from verse 2. As the Lord carries Matthew along to write this gospel, he's using the exact same language to describe Herod's false intention that he just used to describe the wise men's true intention, which is to come and to worship Jesus as the coming king. But all along, Herod is no worshiper. He hears of Jesus' coming. He's not filled up with humility or submission or adoration or satisfaction in Christ because this man wants kingship for himself. He wants people to revere him and honor him and exalt him and lift him up and worship him. He wants the glory. And that is the story of humans, isn't it? This is the normative human way. We often want the glory for ourselves that only Jesus deserves. Look into your heart. It's there. It's in mine too. We're sinners. And it was certainly in Herod's heart. So Herod is not a true worshiper, but he goes beyond that. He's deceptive. You see, in verse 12, uh, the wise men are alerted to the fact that Herod's up to something here. They actually never go back to report what they found with the Messiah. They go home another way, and we read this in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So for Herod, his rejection of Jesus starts with hearing about Jesus, then being troubled by Jesus, then actively looking for Jesus, then trying to kill Jesus to the point where he walks into Bethlehem and he starts slaughtering all the little boys, two years old and younger, for the purpose of getting to Jesus. We see this progression of sin in Herod's heart that starts with first rejecting Jesus as Lord and King. And you may sit here today and you're not opposing Christ in some outwardly extreme way. But maybe like Herod, you've heard about Jesus and his kingship troubles you too. Because if Jesus is king, then you are not. And if Jesus has this authority and this kingship, then you must submit to and accept and come underneath his authority as king rather than just do your own thing. And that's scary. And that can be troubling. And maybe that inner troubling has led to some hard-heartedness toward Christ in some way. Maybe that scenario describes you this morning and you need to hear that Jesus' kingship does not enslave you to a joyless life of just having to be religious, just having to do the morally right and staying away from the morally wrong. It's not just that. Jesus' kingship frees you to know the unparalleled joy of relationship with the God who created you, who loves you, and who died to save you. Herod rejected Jesus and he missed the freedom and the joy of knowing Christ as Lord, as Savior, and as King. And he's set before us as this negative example not to follow. 
So don't follow the example of Herod. And know that wise ones worship. So do you see the contrast in the text? We have Jesus' true kingship. We have Herod's counterfeit kingship. We have the wise men's worship. We have Herod's rejection. Take all of that in and respond. Some of you will hear God's word today and we know that, like Herod, you are going to reject Jesus Christ as Savior and King. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus is polarizing. To some, he will be a cornerstone. And to others, he will be a stumbling stone. Still others of you, uh, responding to Jesus' coming into his kingship with worship for the very first time, might just be acknowledging him as Lord for the first time in your whole life. And you can know that the Bible says that if you do not confess Christ as Lord, that you do not know God and you are lost. But you don't have to be lost today. Because Jesus came. And He lived this perfect life and He kept the law of God that we just so transgress every day of our lives. He kept it perfectly. And He went to the cross because a penalty had to be paid for all of our sin. And He loves His people so much that He said, I don't want you to endure it. I'll do it for you. And He hung there as our substitute. And the wrath of God fell on Him and He was crushed on that cross. But death did not conquer Him. Because He rose again and He reigns and He lives as King over all things to free sinners from this enslavement to our own vices and sin and the penalty of it and the curse of it and all of that. That in Christ, if you would just trust in Him by faith through grace, you would be washed clean and forgiven and welcomed into the family of God, able to worship Jesus as your King Love Him with great rejoicing for the rest of eternity. And right here, God might be stirring up faith in you. Right here this morning, He might be stirring up a longing for Him in your spirit. And today, you can cry out to God, knowing that if you call on the name of Jesus Christ in faith, by grace, you will be saved. Still others of you already know Jesus. That's an amazing, amazing, miraculous blessing. This text is a call for you to take a good hard look at your daily response to him in everyday life. To let your daily worship, your whole life, every part of you, be joyful giving adoration to the king who so deserves it. And if your life has been more glorifying to yourself or to something other than Christ, rather than to Christ, here's something you can do even today. Go home to your apartment, your house, wherever. Find a quiet space. Get on your knees. Close your eyes. And just remember who He is. Think about all that He's done for you. Remember His promises to you. Remember His faithfulness in your life. And worship Him. Confess whatever's going on. Give it to God. Trust that He can wash you by the blood of His Son. Ask Him to take the hardness that might be creeping into your heart and just remove it. To take the apathy away and replace it with this unbounding, rejoicing joy that you get to know Jesus. Take a moment with God and praise Him. How often do we neglect to do that? 
Rejoice, praise, worship your God. There's only one king, and his coming and his kingship brings up an important question in your life. How are you going to respond to Jesus Christ? He's come and he's king, and now it's up to you to respond. Wise ones worship. The word of God has shown us that wise ones worship. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Lord, it's hard to come up with the words to show you how thankful and grateful and filled with joy we are when we think about how lost we were, yet how we are found in Christ. And we praise you that you have come. We praise you that these candles are just a visible picture that the light came into the world on this mission to save sinners. And Jesus, we lift you up. You are our King. You reign over us. We submit to you. We acknowledge you together this morning. We praise you. We worship you. We ask that all glory, all glory, God, goes to you. Thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Lord, this Christmas season, don't let us be preoccupied with ourselves or with gifts or with all of the stuff. Help us, God, to worship you well. Help us, God, to set our hearts and our minds on you in a way that's just pleasing, God. Help us as a people to experience the joy of knowing you. We need you for all these things, and we love you, and we treasure you together this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.